Well, we're going to read from the Bible together now, and we're going to turn first of all to Mark's Gospel, and then after we've read a short passage from Mark's Gospel, we're going to turn over to 2 Peter. So we're reading Mark chapter 9, verses 2 to 13, first of all. You'll find it on page 844 of the Pew Bibles, 844. Uh, If you're using the Pew Bibles, you might want to put your finger in 2 Peter chapter 1, and you'll find that on page 1018 of the Pew Bibles. So Mark chapter 9, first of all, this is the story of Jesus being transfigured, the story of the transfiguration. Um, And we're going to read Mark 9, verses 2 to 13. Mark 9, beginning at verse 2, and this is God's word to us. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen, until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. And then we'll turn over to Second Peter uh, chapter 1. Uh, verses 16 to 21. You'll find it on page 1018 of the Pew Bibles. Second Peter chapter 1 and starting at verse 16. Peter writes, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, And the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Amen. And we thank God for his word to us this evening. Well, let's take our Bibles and turn back to Second Peter. Uh, You'll find the passage that we're looking at this evening on page 1018 of the Pew Bibles. And let's pray together before we think about it. Father, we thank you so much for your word again. We thank you that it's a source of life 
that we can read the greatest story ever known in it. And we pray that in these moments that you would renew our confidence in your word, that you would help us to see that the Bible is your word, that we can trust it, that we can rely on it, and we can know that you are the God who speaks to us through it by your spirit. We pray that you'd be with us by your spirit in these moments, that you would challenge our hearts, that you would encourage us as well. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, several years ago, there was an anonymous article posted on the Christianity Today website with the title, My Conversation with God. Let me read you how the article began. It started in this way. Does God still speak? I grew up hearing testimonies about it, but until October 2005, I couldn't say that it had ever happened to me. I'm a middle-aged professor of theology at a well-known Christian university. I've written award-winning books. My name is on Christianity Today's masthead. For years, I've taught that God still speaks, but I couldn't testify it to it personally. I can only do so now anonymously for reasons I hope will be clear. A year after hearing God's voice, I still can't talk or even think about my conversation with God without being overcome by emotion. The anonymous professor went on to talk about an experience where God supernaturally gave him a book outline and a book title and then directed him to use the money from the book to help a young man go to school and prepare for ministry. He finished the article by saying how strengthened his faith has been to finally have God personally speak to him. It's a fine story in many ways, except in this crucial way. It gives the impression that God does not normally speak to us personally. The article leaves us feeling as though God speaking to us through the scriptures is an inferior, less exciting, less edifying means of communication. We can't help but conclude, yes, the Bible is really important, but wouldn't it be great if I could experience God really speaking to me? If only I could hear from the sure and infallible voice of God. Sounds amazing, doesn't it? Can you imagine God speaking to you personally, certainly, authoritatively? Is that something you desire and want? Well, the good news, which the article seems to have missed, is that every single one of us can hear from God today, tonight, right now, at this very moment. God still speaks, and he has a word for us that is sure, steady, and unerring. That, that, that can be proven from the passage, one of the passages that we've read together this evening, the passage that we have open in front of us, 2 Peter 1, 16 to 21. Uh, we're back to our series on this little letter. It's taken us four sermons to get to the end of chapter 1. Uh, this series is a bit more of a slow burn through a book of the Bible than it is a big sweep, like our, our series on Exodus, for example. Our midweek series at the moment is also connected to this series. Uh, we're thinking about the qualities mentioned by Peter in chapter 1, verses 5 to 7. It's worth remembering the context of this letter, given that it's a few weeks since we looked at it together. To, to Peter is a letter that calls the church to godliness. It's a letter that Peter wrote in order to point us to grace that will stop us from falling. Uh, we've highlighted how his fall, his denial of Jesus is the background to this letter. The first few verses of this chapter are rich in meaning and in power. 
But Peter points us to God's precious and very great promises. He highlights the virtues or qualities that we're to chase after and exhibit as believers. And in verses 12 to 15, he issues three reminders. Remember the life you're called to live. Remember that you're going to drop into eternity one day. And remember what God has given you for life in this world. Peter's main pastoral concern is that false teachers will creep into the church promising freedom that will end up leading people into sin and spiritual bondage. We're going to come to Peter's material on false teachers soon. It's mostly in chapter 2. We've also pointed out, though, Peter's slightly direct or almost belligerent tone. He speaks with a clarity and in a way that leaves us with no wriggle room in terms of understanding where we are and what we need to do. The thing that he calls Christians to do is to make their calling and election sure. We're to ignore false teachers and we're to pursue holiness. And the chief reason for that is the second coming of Christ. When the day of the Lord arrives, the world will be destroyed, our lives exposed and the ungodly judged. In this this letter and in the New Testament generally, the second coming of Christ serves as a profound motivation for turning away from wickedness and making every effort to live an upright and virtuous life. We don't want to be found engaged in unholy deeds when the Holy One returns. That's the broad context of the letter and some of Peter's main points and arguments. But the false teachers doubted that the Lord would come again in some cataclysmic, some awful day of judgment. Can't say that word, wrote it down, thought it was a great word, but can't say it, very good. <laughs> Peter highlights that in verses uh, chapter 3, verses 2 to 4. And we are going to get to those verses eventually, and I'll maybe learn how to say that word. But the false teachers of Peter's day didn't believe in the day of judgment. Peter, Peter's aim in this letter is to convince the faithful that Christ is coming again to judge the living and the dead, and that his return will be a sight to behold. Uh, at the point we're at in the letter, chapter 1, 16 to 21, Peter offers two pieces of evidence. He offers eyewitness testimony and he offers authoritative documents. We've had a touch of the legal side of life this morning and we're back to it this evening. Eyewitness testimony and authoritative documents were the two basic types of evidence in the ancient world and not much has changed. Lawyers make their case by submitting documents or, or calling on witnesses If you want to prove your point in the court of law, you need both. And that's what Peter had. And that's what we're going to think about this evening. What Peter had, eyewitness testimony and authoritative documents. And how those things help us as we long to hear the voice of God. The good news that we're going to consider tonight is that every single one of us can still hear from God today, tonight, right now, at this very moment. God still speaks And he has a word for us that is sure, steady, and unerring. Let's think about the first thing that Peter had, eyewitness testimony. And let's read verses 16 to 18 again. Peter says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from from God the Father, And the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him 
on the holy mountain. Peter is sure of Jesus' glorious return because he saw Jesus transfigured in glory on the holy mountain. We've read Mark's account of the transfiguration mainly because Mark relied on Peter's eyewitness testimony. But Peter, John and James heard the Father's words and were eyewitnesses of the Son's majesty. Any one person who saw what they saw might have passed it off as an hallucination or wishful thinking, but, but three men were on the mountain and they were there at the transfiguration and they knew beyond doubt that Jesus was not to be trifled with. The language of 116 is important to Peter's argument and also to our doctrine of scripture. In recounting the events of the transfiguration, Peter makes it clear that he doesn't follow cleverly devised myths. Uh, some liberal scholars have tried to use the category of myth to describe the Bible. Uh, they're quick to say that myth is not the same as false, and so they argue that while the facts of Scripture may not always be believable, the larger, deeper truth still is. So a good example is the story of Exodus. Liberal scholars say that the plagues and the Red Sea crossing weren't necessarily historical events, but in the same breath, they argue that they argue that, that doesn't call into question the power of God or his, or his ability to set the captives free. Now, this kind of thing is very common, but it's important to note that the word in the original for myth is always used negatively in the New Testament. Myth is seen as the opposite of truth. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4. He says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. For the biblical writers, there is myth on one side and truth on the other, and the Bible clearly belongs to the latter. Even if you argue that the liberal definition of myth is not exactly what the New Testament is condemning when it critiques myths, you still can't get around the logic of verse 16. In referencing his role as an eyewitness, Peter wants everyone to know that the story of Jesus, the transfiguration primarily, but presumably the rest of the gospel story that he passed on, is in the category of historical, verifiable fact. Not impressions, not inner experiences, not stories invented to make a point. The Greeks and the Romans of the day had lots of myths, no one was interested in the historical evidence for the claim that Hercules was the illegitimate son of Zeus. It was a myth, it was a fable, a tall tale, a story to entertain and make sense of the world. Paganism was built on the power of mythology, but Christianity saw itself as an entirely different religion. We can't state this strongly enough. From the very beginning, Christianity tied itself to history. The most important claims of Christianity are historical claims and on the facts of history, the Christian religion must stand or fall. To discount history is to live in a different world from the one that the biblical authors live in. It's as if Peter's saying this. It's as if he's saying, look, I, I saw this. I saw the transfiguration and I wasn't alone. We heard it. We were eyewitnesses and earwitnesses. We're not making this up to scare you. We're not passing on intriguing stories or clever tales. We're telling you what really happened. We saw his glory. We saw it with our own eyes. We heard God speak audibly. This wasn't an experience that we had in our hearts 
or a vision in our souls, if you had been on the mountain, you would have seen and heard the same things. We're talking about fact, not fable. Now remember the point that Peter's trying to make. Second Peter isn't a systematic theology textbook. He wants Christians to be holy. He wants them to consider their lives in light of Christ's return. He's trying to convince them of the certainty of the second coming. And one way to prove that a glorious, dreadful, amazing, wonderful, fearful second coming of Christ will happen in history is for Peter to remind these believers and us, reading his letter thousands of years later, that he has already seen a glorious, dreadful, amazing, wonderful, fearful appearing of Christ. Peter saw the unveiling. He saw what Jesus looked like in his full divine regalia. And Peter realized that Christ was more than a mere carpenter, more than an open-minded guru, more than a non-judgmental encourager of everyone and everything. When he saw Jesus sparkle white and dazzle in majesty with the glory cloud, he knew that at that moment that this man was not to be trifled with. And when Jesus comes again, we will all realize, even if it's too late for some of us, that ungodly living is inconsistent with the glory of Christ. That's Peter's point. And it depends on history. depends on the evidence of eyewitness testimony. It also depends on the other thing that Peter had, authoritative documents. So look again at verses 19 to 21. Peter says, and we have the prophetic word more fully proclaimed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The prophetic word comes before Peter's own eyewitness account. And whatever Peter, James, and John saw on the mountain, and however it relates to Jesus' second coming, these things only confirmed what the prophetic word had already made sure. You cannot put more confidence in your Bible than Peter put in his. Notice what verses 19 to 21 tell us about the scriptures. They tell us that that the scripture is the word of God. Now that may sound very simple, but the word is says something very important. Scripture is the word of God. Some Christians have been influenced by theologians who, who instead of saying that the Bible is the word of God, say the Bible contains the word of God or becomes the word of God. Now that may seem like hair splitting and it's a very nuanced position, but it's a very dangerous move to make. If you move towards saying that the Bible becomes or contains the word of God, the the Bible is the word of God. Peter uses three different terms to refer to the word of God in all these verses. The prophetic word, prophecy of scripture, and prophecy. All of those words are basically the same. And what Peter is doing is that he's saying that the authority of God's word resides in the written text. The words, the sentences, the paragraphs of scripture. These verses also tell us that the word of God is no less divine because it's given through human instruments. We don't believe that the original writers of the Bible were passive instruments 
People that God took over and turned into robots who simply then recorded what they were given from heaven. Instead, we believe what 2 Peter 1, 21 teaches. Men spoke and wrote as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In other words, God used the intellect, skills, and personality personalities of fallible men to write down what was divine and infallible. The Bible, in one sense, is a human and a divine book. And the dual authorship doesn't mean imperfection. Most importantly of all, though, these verses tell us that the Bible is without error. The scriptures don't come from human interpretation, verse 20. The ideas don't spring forth from the confused mind of man. The ultimate author of the scripture, Peter tells us, is God himself. There are lots of passages or texts that we could use to show that the Bible is without error. But here's the simplest argument. Scripture did not come from the will of man. It came from God. And if it is God's word, then it must all be true, for in him there can be no error or deceit. The big word for the concept of the Bible being without error is inerrancy. It means that the word of God always stands over us and we never stand over the word of God. When we reject inerrancy, we put ourselves in judgment over God's word. We, we claim the right to determine which part of God's revelation can be trusted and which cannot. So standing firm on, uner- on inerrancy is really important because it's at the heart of our faith. To deny, disregard, edit, alter, reject, or rule out anything in God's word is to commit the sin of unbelief. It's as Romans 3 verse 4 says, Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. If we deny inerrancy, it means that we have a compromised Christianity, and ultimately a compromised Christianity won't satisfy the soul or present to the lost the sort of God they need to meet. How are we to believe in a God who can do the unimaginable and forgive our trespasses, conquer our sins and give us hope in a dark world, if we cannot believe that this God created the world out of nothing, gave a virgin a child, and raised his son on the third day. Peter offers two pieces of really important evidence to us in verses 16 to 21. He offers us eyewitness testimony, and he offers us authoritative documents. What verses 16 to 21 remind us of is that the word of God is true. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ has been born in Bethlehem, has lived and died. Thousands of people have seen him and thousands of people knew him. He did miracles witnessed by multitudes. He died, rose again, and appeared to more than 500 witnesses. And all of this is recorded in the Bible for us. And we can trust what the Bible says. Everyone knew the the location of Jesus' tomb, and it was empty and open to examination Three disciples in particular were eyewitnesses of his majesty on the Mount of Transfiguration. They saw that event and simply passed on what they or their closest associates had also seen. We don't follow a myth. We're not interested in stories with a nice moral to them. We're not helped by hoping in spiritual possibilities when we, which we know to be historically impossible. These things in the gospel story actually happened. God predicted them. God fulfilled them. 
he inspired the written record of them. Therefore, therefore, we ought to believe them. Now, nothing in all the Bible was produced solely by the human will. God used men to write the, write the words, but these men did their work carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Bible is an utterly reliable book, an unerring book, a holy book, a divine book. We need to make sure that we don't miss the staggering claim in 2 Peter 1.19. After going into great detail about the awesome events on the Mount of Transfiguration, after taking great pains to explain that he was an eyewitness to these things, after laboring to show us that he is speaking rock-solid truth, Peter says this. He says, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. This is incredible, and, and here's why. P Peter says that his eyewitness testimony only confirms what was already sure. In other words, he has some good news for us. Every single one of us can still hear from God today, tonight, right now, at this very moment. God still speaks and he has a word for us that is sure, steady, and unerring. Do, do, do you talk about and think about the Bible in the way that the apostles talked about the Bible? You can think too highly of your own interpretations of Scripture, but you cannot think too highly of Scripture's interpretation of itself. You can use the Word of God to come to wrong conclusions, but you cannot find any wrong conclusions in the Word of God. Can you imagine God speaking to you personally, certainly, and authoritatively? Is that something that you desire and want? The good news from this passage this evening is that you can listen to the voice of God every day. Christ still speaks because the Spirit has already spoken. If you want to hear from God, go to the book that records only what he has said. Immerse yourself in the Word of God you will not find anything more sure. Now, what if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian? Well, what you've got to realize is that you have enough to know what to do. Let me finish with this story. D during World War II, six Allied fighter pilots were on a mission when their aircraft carrier received orders for a blackout because enemy submarines were in the area. The fighter pilots completed their mission but they were surprised to find no landing lights where the ship ought to have been. One of the pilots radioed the ship, give us some light so we can land. The response came back negative. We can't give you any light at this time. A full blackout has been ordered. A bit later, second pilot requested, give us some light so we can land. Negative, blackout still in effect. A third pilot, dangerously low on fuel said, can't you at least give us one light so we can land? The radio operator was told to discontinue all contact. As a result, six fighters went, reportedly went down in the dark waters of the Atlantic. The story helps us in this way. Just as in Peter's day, lots of people refused to submit their life and behavior to Jesus on the charge that they have not been given enough light to land. The, the, the argument is that until they see something or hear something or feel something, they simply will not believe that they are going to be accountable to someone for anything. But to put it simply, if you will not believe the Bible, 
you will not believe in Christ. Enough light has been given for you to land safely on the other side of eternity. But if you refuse the light, if you refuse to submit to the scriptures, if you refuse the light that is available to you, you're just like those pilots headed for certain death. What if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian? What you've got to realize is that you have enough to know what to do. You have the gospel story. You can rely upon it. There's eyewitness testimony to it. There are authoritative documents that come from God himself. And the Bible tells us that today is the best day to get right with God if you're not already. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your sure and certain word. We thank you that you are the God who has given us the light of the scriptures. And we thank you that you make it plain to us how we must be saved, how we must trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, how we must turn to him in repentance and in faith. And we thank you as well that you've given us enough light to live as believers in this world through the scriptures. We thank you that we're called to, to, to make our calling and election sure and that everything we have in the Bible is not only trustworthy, but, but, but is enough for us to live life in this world. Father, help us to immerse ourselves in the scriptures. Help us to give ourselves to hearing from you every day. We pray for your grace to help us in that. We know that we're weak. We know that we fail you in this regard. But we pray that you would give us strength this week to turn to the pages of your word and that you would speak to us. Father, we pray too that you'd speak to those who don't know the Lord Jesus. We pray that they would realize that the gospel story as recorded for us in the scriptures is reliable and true and is the only light available. Father, we pray that by your spirit you would speak through your word and convict of sin and bring people to trust in Jesus. And we pray all these things in his precious and saving name. Amen.